0: to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we open the word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our study. Our Father, as we study your word, we need to be reminded that you have written this for us. You've written this to us to teach us about yourself, to teach us about your plan for salvation, to teach us about who we are in our desperate need to be dependent upon you in a radical way day in and day out because you and you alone are sufficient to enable us to handle and face whatever comes our way in life, that through you we have peace and stability and comfort, but that ultimately we only have that because we have a relationship with you that is dependent upon our faith in Christ that first and foremost we must understand who he is as our Savior who came into the world to deliver us from sin, and that salvation is by faith alone in him alone. Father, we pray that that will be clear to us today. We pray that you'd help us to understand more about who he is as the promised Messiah from the Old Testament and the Savior who has completely paid for our sin on the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Now, <clears throat> by way of introduction, I want to remind you how important it is to understand the, the, that Scripture teaches again and again and again the radical, <clears throat> the radical inability of man we just aren't capable to handle life situations we're often overwhelmed we are often uh, in a state of anxiety uh, the normative state of the human soul prior to uh, prior to salvation is predicated upon fear this is the first emotion that is really brought forward in scripture uh, in genesis chapter 3 after Uh, Eve, and then Adam had sinned, and God came to walk in the garden, and they were afraid, and they hid. This is a paradigm for all human behavior. The starting point is fear, and we're afraid because we know that life living in the devil's world is overwhelming. We may not be able to articulate it. That may be part of the truth we're suppressing in unrighteousness, thinking that, that we're sufficient to handle things. But the reality is is that we are totally incapable and incompetent to face the realities of life on our own. We just don't have the resources to do it. And as we get into this section in Matthew today, we're going to address two things. First of all, the inauguration of the Messiah, which is seen in the episode of John's baptism of Jesus. And then this flows almost immediately into the next event, which is the temptation of our Lord, which we'll get into in an introductory way today, because this authenticates him as Messiah, but it also, in one of the many ways in which God multitasks, it provides a pattern for us, and how we are to uh, face and handle the, the challenges, the temptations, the tests of life, and that that is based on the Word of God, that the Word of God is sufficient, the Spirit of God is sufficient, and the plan of God is sufficient. And only on that basis can we really have the kind of peace and stability and happiness and joy to be able to go forward no matter what the external circumstances may be, no matter what those pressures in our life uh, might be. So we continue our study after John's baptism. He has a confrontation, as we've studied, uh, with, the, uh, <clears throat> with the Pharisees because they have come out to evaluate who he is and see what is going on. And in that confrontation with the Pharisees, I pointed out last time that John says in verse 11, so put your focus on verse 11 for just a minute by way of review, I indeed baptize you with water, Unto repentance, but he who is coming after me, that is a reference to the Messiah whom he's the, whom he's announcing. He who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now I'm going to give you a little review a couple of times on the grammar of this because that's really important for understanding, bringing out a couple of things that Matthew brings out in this section. I have taught you many times about the baptism of the Spirit and that this should be translated baptism by the Spirit because the Greek preposition that's used here that is translated with, by, or in sometimes uh, is the preposition, the Greek preposition in spelled e-n. And it's an instrumental. That means it's pointing out the way or the instrument by which something is accomplished. John the Baptist uses it in talking about water, that he uses water as the instrument to affect this new identification with repentance. In 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, we have a similar statement made that has often been confusing. I've taught this many times, that in that passage, Paul says, "...for we have all been baptized by one Spirit." often based on english not based on greek that has been misinterpreted to indicate that the spirit performs the action of baptism again it's the same preposition the same phrase that we have in matthew chapter 3:11 and should be consistently translated that we have all been baptized by the spirit and one of the minor little points of grammar that make the study of greek so much fun and give you so much insight is that in Greek, when you move from an active voice verb, he, being Jesus, baptized, which means Jesus performs the action of baptism. If you were to change that in Greek to a passive construction, that we were baptized by Jesus, Jesus, as the performer of the action of baptism, would be indicated grammatically to be the one who does the baptism by the preposition hupa, which in Greek is a clue to indicate who that is, who performs the action in an active voice verb. We don't have hupa ever associated with the Spirit. He's never the agent who performs the action of baptism, but he is the means by which Christ brings about that baptism, so that at the moment of our faith in Christ, God the Son uses God the Holy Spirit to cleanse us positionally from sin and then to identify us with himself in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, the reason I point that out is because in our first verse today, we see a passive verb using this same kind of grammatical construction, and it all sort of helps us tie some things together in our understanding of what the Holy Spirit is doing with Jesus at this point and how that... That applies to us. Matthew 3.13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John the Baptist uh, to be baptized by him. John, I mean, Matthew, in his, the writing of his gospel, will see that he frequently uses, uh, as he's moving the, the story along, he frequently uses a word, then. That's his style. He says, this happened, and this happened, and this happened. Mark always seems to be in a hurry. Mark uses the transitional term immediately. This happens immediately this happens immediately this happens immediately this happens and you after you read about three chapters in mark you 're sort of trying to catch your breath because he 's running through the life of Christ so fast, and everything happens immediately. Luke uses a slightly different phrase and and so each one is different. This just shows that that in the inspiration of uh, uh, scripture that God the Holy Spirit allows each writer to write in terms of their own style their own vocabulary that sort of thing and so what Matthew is simply introducing here is that the next event that he's talking about is uh, after talking about <coughs> John the Baptist's confrontation with the Jews is and the Pharisees is the baptism of Jesus it's not he doesn't really indicate this is something that happens Right on the heels of the other confrontation. It could be a day, two or three later. In fact, it seems to be that as John the Baptist's ministry gains publicity and Jesus, who has still in obscurity in Nazareth, hears that John is down and at the right time, Jesus proceeds to the south. And so here's a map. The uh, Sea of Galilee is located here, over here on the uh, west, we have the Mediterranean. Uh, this area is the area primarily where you have uh, <clears throat> modern Israel today. The, the Jordan River flows south from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. Over here on the right is the modern kingdom of Jordan. And Jesus lives here in the north in Galilee where he has grown up, apprenticed probably by his father Joseph, working also as a carpenter, Uh, awaiting the proper time when he is going to come onto the scene. John the Baptist is the forerunner. He, as the advanced team, is announcing him in fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament. And so at the right time, Jesus makes his way from Nazareth down south along the Jordan to some area uh, north of the uh, Dead Sea, That is located, uh, we know somewhere to the, uh, to the east of Jericho. This is the area where Jesus goes to be baptized by John the Baptist. And then he's going to go back, uh, to somewhere, and we don't know exactly the chronology, but in this area especially, this is the traditional area in the hill country of Judah, which is, which is pretty barren uh but the word that we normally translate as wilderness or sometimes as desert can simply mean uh, a rural area out in the country an unpopulated rural area so it doesn't necessarily imply a forested wilderness or a barren wilderness we just don't know exactly but it was some place where there was uh where there was no population and for a period of 40 days and 40 nights Jesus will fast and we'll talk about that when we get there. But this gives you the geography of the area that he heads south, and there he is going to uh, come forward uh, <clears throat> with John the Baptist preaching to be baptized by John. In verse uh, 13, we go on to read, Then Jesus came, to get, came from Galilee, that would be up in Nazareth, to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him and i've put in the the boxes there below with the two greek words because the verb is baptizo and in the parsing we see that it's an aorist passive infinitive as a passive verb in the greek you're going to indicate that the one who performs the action is indicated by that preposition hoopa and that's what we have in both places uh, Jesus came to to the Jordan to be baptized by John. In other words, Jesus came so John would baptize him. John would be is actively uh, expressed as the one who does the does the baptism. Now I'm making a point out of this when we get to the first verse in the next chapter, Matthew 3:14. We read John tried to prevent him, saying, uh, "I need to be baptized by you." Same construction but what it indicates is a an active involvement of 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 the the subject of, of, of the object or the, the subject or excuse me the object of the preposition by performing the action of the verb now just so you understand why i'm stressing this is in verse 1 of chapter 4 we read then jesus was led up by the Spirit. Now that's not the instrumental dative we're used to seeing with being filled by means of the Spirit. This is a different, this is the same kind of construction. It's indicating that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, then after following the baptism will actively lead and direct Jesus into the wilderness to go through the uh, fasting period where Luke form, informs us there was also testing to these three ultimate tests that take place. And the point that, that we see here, point of application, is that often when we go through difficult times, stressful times, we go through times of, of pressure and, and testing, it is God who is taking us through that so that we can learn something. He's teaching us something, and sometimes it's, it's difficult, it's painful, and it lasts a lot longer than we think it should, but it is the opportunity that God's taken us through intensified uh, suffering in order to teach us this kind of radical dependence upon God that we see evidenced in Jesus in the testing at the beginning of chapter 4. Now, back to the baptism by John the Baptist, when... J- Jesus comes to John, we're told that John tried to prevent him. This is a Greek word, diakolo, meaning to forbid, to hinder, or restrain. Why is John trying to stop Jesus from getting baptized? It's because John understands that his baptism is a baptism for repentance to the kingdom, Jesus has nothing to be, to repent of. He is not a sinner. He's without sin. So John does not see how his baptism applies at all to Jesus. Why should Jesus be baptized for unto repentance? Jesus is the perfect Son of God. He's the perfect God-man and there's no sin in him. This is clearly seen in passages such as Hebrews 4.15 that tells us that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tested as we are, yet without sin. Now that's an important thing for us to understand as introduction to the testing in Matthew 4, because what we see is not that Jesus is tested in every detail with a, with a precise form of testing that you and I face, but in all of the categories of testing. He's, te- he's, he's tested. He is, he's tempted externally. We'll talk about the testing and tempting terminology as we go through this. But the point is, he is without sin. It is a valid test, though, even though he is the God-man and as deity he cannot sin. In his humanity, he is handling the pressure of the test on the basis of his, the resources that God has given him in his humanity, not in his deity. And we're going to stress this point several times because so many people think, well, of course Jesus couldn't sin. He's relying on his deity. And that's not right. That's, that provides no foundation for us, no encouragement for us. If, if, G, if Jesus is cheating, as it were, and relying on his deity to handle pressure, how can that help us? We can't bail out and, and access any deity. No, what Jesus is showing in the testing is that he handles the test from his humanity with the same resources that God has given to you and me. So he performs perfectly. He's without sin. Second Corinthians 5.21 also states this principle that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, again stressing the point that Jesus was not a sinner. He never did sin. He was, that's part of the purpose of the virgin birth, is that he never received a sin nature. Some people would say, well, wait a minute, if he didn't have a sin nature, of course he didn't sin. Well, wait a minute. Adam was not created with a sin nature, and Adam sinned. The first Adam failed the test. He entered into t- temptation, to testing, and he responded. Through disobedience, he didn't rely upon the provision of God. He tried to handle things from his own resources, and he failed and disobeyed and yielded to the temptation. What Jesus is going to show is that he is qualified to be the Messiah because he passes the test that Adam failed. So as the second Adam, he demonstrates his qualifications to be the Messiah and to go to the cross to die to die for our sins. As such, he this this initial episode emphasizes his uh giving evidence at the beginning of his ministry that he is qualified to enter into that ministry of presenting the kingdom uh to Israel. So John says, No, no, I, I can't I can't baptize you, I'm not gonna baptize you. And Jesus responds in verse 15 by saying uh, to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Now the reason I've underlined that phrase, for thus it is fitting to for us to fulfill all unrighteousness, is that helps us to understand the difference in Jesus' baptism. Uh, some people have come uh, some of you may have come from some church backgrounds where you have heard at a baptismal service or in teaching on baptism that we're to follow the Lord in baptism. And that's not true. Jesus baptism was a unique baptism. I've pointed out in the past that there were uh, seven different baptisms in or eight different baptisms in the in the New Testament. Uh, the three baptisms that involve water. Uh, the baptism of John the Baptist, which was a baptism related to the, his message that the kingdom of God was at hand. Uh, the baptism of Jesus was unique to him because this is related to his public ministry as Messiah. And that's important that we understand this. I'm going to bring out facets of what's going on here and in the temptation because we have to be reminded that that uh, of Matthew's purpose. Matthew is writing to show the qualifications of Jesus as the Messiah. And so everything must be interpreted ultimately within that, that particular framework. And so Jesus is coming to fulfill all righteousness, and that has to be understood in terms of his messianic ministry. So it happens at the beginning of His ministry, so it's related to His, the inauguration of His public ministry, and the nature of that public ministry at the beginning is to, uh, be presented as the Messiah, the one who has come to offer the kingdom to Israel. That's God's plan. God's plan, remember, is to, is the cross before the crown. In Israel, they had forgotten that the Messiah was going to suffer. They expected the crown, the glory of the kingdom before the cross, if they even understood that there would be suffering for the Messiah. And so in summary, what we're saying is that Jesus' baptism is an identification with the Father's plan of presenting the kingdom to Israel, but that presentation is based upon the order of events that the cross The suffering of the Messiah will come before the crown, the glory of the Messiah. And so in order to fulfill that, Jesus goes to John for John to baptize him as an identification with the plan of the Father. Verse 16, we're told when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Now here we have uh, 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 just one of the few audible Public, I mean, to a huge group. This is like when when uh, Moses, God is initially going to give the law to Moses after the Exodus, and all of the people of Israel, three million of them, are gathered at the at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God began to speak, and everybody could hear him. Uh, and immediately the Jews said, no, 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 we can't we can't bear this. Just have, have Moses go up on the mountain and just talk to him, but we can't bear to hear the sound of God's voice. If you had had a little MP3 recorder with you, you could have recorded the voice of God and played it back at any time. This is the same kind of thing that's happening here. It's not just some sort of mystical event that only the believers would see. It's not the, 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 the sort of vague thing that you see depicted sometime and." And some of the films that have been made about the life uh, of Jesus, King of Kings, and uh, some of the, Jesus of Nazareth, and some of the other ones. But this is a public attestation. You have a huge crowd of people who've come out to see, see John the Baptist, and all of a sudden, this nondescript individual that, that according to Isaiah 53 had nothing in his appearance to bring attention to himself, this nondescript a carpenter walks through the crowd and comes up to John, and John just, just everything changes at that point. He doesn't want to baptize him. This individual says, no, we have to do this to fulfill all righteousness, and then John baptizes him, and immediately we hear a voice out of heaven. Everybody heard it. Everybody, Everybody's probably just aghast, looking around. Where's that voice coming from? And the, and from heaven, there's this announcement, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, John, I mean, Matthew doesn't record this. Luke does that at that same time, God the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends upon, upon Jesus. So you have a witness at the beginning of his ministry from God the Father and God the Son, an emphasis on the Trinitarian appearance here of God. To indicating the approval of Jesus now this statement that that comes from God the Father this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased is relates back to and kinds of reminds us of a couple of statements made in messianic prophecies in the old testament it's not a fulfillment of these prophecies But they allude to those prophecies. If you were familiar with the Old Testament at all, and many of these Jews that were there with John the Baptist were, then when you heard this from heaven, it would bring certain verses to your mind. One is Psalm 2-7, where we're told, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This announcement, you are my son. And then Isaiah 42, 1, the Father is prophesied as saying, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, that the Father delights in the servant. So this connects what is happening with John the baptism and this, and the baptism of Jesus. John the Baptist and this baptism with Jesus, this is connected to messianic prophecy, again affirming that Jesus is the prophesied and promised baptism. So what we see in Jesus' baptism is that he is identified with, the, with his messianic mission to offer the kingdom, and that that, in terms of the Father's plan, is to offer the kingdom by way of the cross, which is not going to be understood fully by the Jewish people. Now, we have one other aspect of this that I want to bring out that comes out in Peter's uh, sermon and Peter's message to the Gentiles in the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. There, Peter says the word of God as he's telling the story about Jesus. He said the word of God, which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, that that word you know. They've heard the story about Jesus. They've heard the story about the message of the kingdom, even these God-fearing Gentiles in Cornelius' household. That word, you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. And then here's the key point in verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. So what happens at the baptism is not that Jesus was living apart from the Spirit in the previous 30-some-odd years, but that there is something unique and distinct that takes place at this point that is called the anointing with the Spirit. That, and that the Greek word for anointing, the verb is krio, C-H-R-I-O. From the verb, we get the noun Christos, the appointed one or anointed one. And so this relates to his, his being distinctly anointed and appointed uh, by God the Holy Spirit at this point. This is what brings him uh, into public awareness and the um, beginning of his ministry. Now, I want to remind you of what we read earlier in Luke chapter 4, related to what happens when Jesus leaves here and goes, uh, into the wilderness or the desert in order to, uh, to, for the temptation. Verse one, then Jesus, and we read, being filled by the Holy Spirit. Again, this is different terminology. This isn't being led by the Spirit, hupa, which indicates a direct leading by God the Holy Spirit, unique. You and I, no church age believers ever experienced this outside of of the the apostles. This is a a direct, a ministry of direct revelation from God the Holy Spirit and an active directing and leading that is unique to his particular ministry. But in Luke, we say he is, we learn that he is also filled by means of the Spirit. Now, this isn't the filling of the Spirit that you and I experience. In Ephesians 5.18, the word that's used there is plerao. The word that is used here is a, a similar word, pimplamy. When pimplamy is used, it always indicates a strong, direct influence of God the Holy Spirit. It frequently precedes any kind of direct revelation. Someone experiences this kind of feeling, then they say something. So it's related somewhat to divine inspiration, but it's a much more direct uh, uh, leadership and influence by the Holy Spirit than we have with, with the filling of the Spirit or filling by the Spirit that we have in terms of the spiritual life of, of the church age. Luke says that Jesus, having been filled by the Spirit, that's related to this anointing of ten thirty eight Acts 10.38, Uh After being filled by the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. There we have similar terminology to what we have in Matthew 4.1 here, that the Spirit is led up, I mean that Jesus is led up by the Spirit. And that word for leading is the word anago, which means to, it can mean to take up, to raise, to offer up, or to direct or take something from some place to another location. It's done by the spirit Hoopa indicating the spirit does this action. It's directive. This is not a passage that you or I can ever use to apply to any kind of divine guidance in the church age. It's totally distinct. Only, only uh, Jesus and perhaps the disciples, I mean the apostles at a few points, were ever given this kind of direct guidance because it's related to direct revelation and direct revelation ceased uh, with the closing of the canon in the Old Testament. Now, when we look at this just by way of introduction, because there's so much that comes up in Matthew chapter four in terms of the, the testing that I want to just introduce you to an overview of what we're going to see here in the next week or so as we, as we study this, what, Matthew does in in, uh, in this chapter, in chapter 4, is to present the qualifications of the character of Jesus as the Messiah. The emphasis here is on the qualifications of his character, that he has reached a point of spiritual maturity, and he demonstrates that through the way he passes this testing. So this is an evidentiary type of testing where he, where Jesus as the Messiah, uh, provides evidence before the angels within the framework of the angelic conflict and before the human race that he is qualified to enter into his public ministry as the Messiah. It's important to understand. Always this is related to his function as a Messiah. So there's, There's about three things that we need to understand in terms of what is going on here. Uh, because the testing of Jesus is multifaceted. Remember that. It's, God's a, God's a multitasker. He's going to accomplish several things in one thing. This isn't just related to one thing or another. So I've, I've outlined about uh, three, four things actually that are, God accomplishes in the testing. First of, first of all, It demonstrates his messianic character and credentials. It emphasizes his messianic character and credentials. Why did Jesus come? First and foremost, he came as Messiah to fulfill the messianic role to be the savior of his people from sin. That's the focal point. It's who he is as the Messiah. Now, there's a lot that's involved with being the Messiah, as we'll see, including the fact that he's the God-man. But first and foremost, his mission is to present himself to Israel as the prophesied, promised uh, Messiah. And so each temptation relates to Jesus' messiahship. There's elements within each of these temptations that connect to the qualifications of the the Messiah from the Old Testament. And so in these tests, Jesus will show his spiritual maturity and that he is qualified to be uh, Israel's Messiah. Now, if you think back with me a little bit to some Old Testament stories, we know that this was foreshadowed in the typology and the symbolism of the first two kings of Israel, or the first the first two reigning kings over all of Israel. I often use facetiously the uh, trivial question, who was the first person anointed uh, king over Israel? And people always want to try to argue with me, but according to the text in Judges 9, the men of Shechem anointed uh, Abimelech the son of Gideon to be king over all Israel you can't argue with the text he only reigns for two years and just, just Shechem but text says he was inaugurated or anointed to be the king over all Israel that was not God's choice but I didn't ask you who God's choice was I said who was the first person anointed king over Israel you got to pay attention to the details the first king, though is Saul, the first god ordained god anointed king uh, is 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 uh, Saul now, when Samuel the prophet anointed saul uh, it 's a private event. The first thing that happens after that is that Saul goes off following the directions of uh, of Samuel and he falls in with these prophets, and that indicates a spiritual regeneration that has occurred that he 's clearly a believer, and then he is going to uh, lead the people in a Victorious conquest of of their enemies that shows his publicly shows his qualifications to be the Messiah. The same thing happens with 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 uh, David. You're more familiar with that story. Samuel anoints David to be the next king of Israel while Saul is still reigning because Saul's in disobedience. And what happens immediately after that? It's a private ceremony with with only the family there when uh, Samuel anoints David. And then what happens in the next chapter? David goes out and he defeats and kills Goliath, the enemy of Israel. This is a public demonstration of his messianic ability to to trust in God and to defeat the enemies of Israel. This is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. This is what's expected of the Messiah, is that he is going to be able to defeat and conquer the enemies of Israel. So he faces this test, this challenge from uh, the devil in the wilderness, and he wins so he's demonstrating his credentials of his character uh to be the, to be the messiah and so this is the first temptation in the first temptation uh satan says uh you're hungry he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights which any of us can do yes you can don't tell me you can't any human being can go 40 days 40 nights i mean if you're healthy uh without food You need to have water, but you can go that long without food. You won't be hungry every day. It's not a daily test to be uh, fasting. If you've never done it, then you haven't learned it. I've gone maximum three and a half days. After the second day, your hunger pangs go away. And from what I've read, I've never gone 40 days. They will not return until about the 40th day. Then they come back with a vengeance because now life is starting to be threatened. You can go. I think there have been some people who have gone on hunger strikes 50 or more days. But you can go 40 days. But you're in a state of mental and emotional weakness. You're extremely vulnerable because now that hunger is coming back on you just like a freight train. I mean, that's all you can think about. About You wake up after about 30 five or 36 days without being too concerned about food, then the next morning you wake up and you feel like you can eat uh, a whole herd of cattle at one sitting. I've gone through, like I pointed out, I went through a three-day fast one time as part of a wilderness leadership seminar hosted by uh, or led by uh, uh, at at Honey Rock Camp up in in, uh, northern Wisconsin and northern Michigan about 20 or 30, about 30 years ago. And we came off of that fast, and then we had to do a half-marathon run. And when we hit the cafeteria for breakfast, I think I ate five times more than I've ever eaten for breakfast. And then uh, my friend Dan Miller and I got on an airplane and where we were served a full breakfast. And then when we landed at the next airport in Chicago, we ate another full breakfast. (laughs) And we were still hungry. Well, the next two or three days, I don't think I've ever eaten so much. I mean, you just can't say no to food. And once you start eating, that appetite also comes back in a ravenous manner. So Jesus is in a state of weakness, and his appetite's coming back, and Satan says, well, you're God. You just turn these stones into bread. And so Jesus responds by saying something very uh, very interesting here in, in verse um, Verse 4, quoting from Deuteronomy 8, 3, he says, It's written, man shall not live by bread alone. But the word there for man, which he's applying to himself, is the word anthropos, emphasizing a human being, as opposed to anir, which emphasizes uh, being male. And he's identifying himself as a man. He entered, he's emphasizing himself and identifying himself with the human race, that he's going to handle the problem not from his deity, But from his humanity. So he answers as the God-man, not as God. And when I say God-man, I'm emphasizing the humanity of the hypostatic union. Now the term hypostatic union, this is a long definition. Uh, It's from the Greek word hypostasis, which means the essence or actual being of something. And what it describes, it's a term that comes out of the early church. It describes how these two natures of Jesus are united, his eternal divine nature being united with his uh, humanity, and that this is a union of two natures in one Person One, the technical term is theanthropic, from theos for God, anthropos for man, one person. So one person answers. He doesn't answer from his deity or from his humanity. He doesn't have a split person. He, The one person answers. But the answer is going to be uh, emphasizing that he's handling this from his human side, not from the divine side. And um and so these two natures are united together. Now the next term I want to introduce, we'll review this again in the coming weeks, is a term coming out of Philippians two seven, Kenosis, where it says that Jesus emptied himself. And technically that's the correct translation, but there's a lot of been a lot of argument over the centuries as to what that means. And what it means is called the doctrine of kenosis. It means that during the incarnation Jesus Christ, as the eternal second person of the Trinity, willingly restricted the use of his divine attributes so as not to use them to solve problems related to his humanity. I mean, that's all we really need. The rest of the definition we'll go over some more, but the main thing to learn now is what Jesus does in hypostatic union. He doesn't say, I'm not going to access my deity at all. He accesses deity in order to demonstrate his claims to be God. But he never accesses his deity in terms of his omniscience or his omnipresence in order to handle the spiritual problems his humanity faces. When he turns the water into wine, he's showing that he is the creator and he, as God, has the authority to do that. But he doesn't turn the bread, the stones into bread because that would solve a personal problem. A temptation directed to a sin nature. The turning of the water into wine had nothing to do with his personal desire to drink wine or his personal desire to handle uh, uh, any kind of uh, temptation or testing. Two different circumstances. So what we see in the union of Christ uh, of the deity and humanity of Christ is that that Jesus willingly limits the use of his of his um, deity, in order to solve the spiritual problems related to his humanity. And so this is the the second aspect of this. The first aspect emphasizes that he is qualified as the Messiah. Uh, The second aspect is that in the humanity of his hypostatic union of the God-man, he's going to demonstrate his absolute, as a man in his humanity, that he is absolutely and totally dependent upon God's provision and protection. As as such he shows that he uh he surpasses and, and passes the test of Adam and that he will not act independently of the Father's plan. So this first way is that he shows he's qualified in his character to be the Messiah. Second, he's showing that as a man, he's going to handle whatever uh, tests are coming uh, in order to demonstrate that God's provision and protection is sufficient. And that leads us then into the third, uh, third thing that he accomplishes, is that he shows to us and to the angels the absolute sufficiency of the power of the word of God the Spirit of God, and the plan of God. Absolutely sufficient, which means that God has given us everything we need to handle whatever comes our way. He is sufficient to sustain us and enable us to encounter those things no matter what happens in our spiritual life. And in that, Jesus is setting a pattern and a precedent for us in the church age that we need to learn to be totally dependent upon him. And fourth, he shows us how we do that, and that is that we use the Word of God, that we are dependent upon the Word of God, which presupposes that we know the Word of God. You can't use the Word of God if you don't know the Word of God, and you can only know the Word of God if you take the time to read it, to study it, to be in Bible class, to saturate your life and your thinking with the Word of God. What is it that qualifies Jesus to enter into his public ministry? Is that he's grown to spiritual maturity. He's grown to spiritual maturity by studying and assimilating the Word of God into his life. Real ministry for us as believers doesn't begin when we're children. doesn't begin when we're adolescents spiritually. It begins when we become adults. The idea in Scripture is that we need to hurry up and become adults. You can hurry up and become a spiritual adult you can 't do that in physical life, but you can do that in your spiritual life by studying the word and when we and along the way we begin to learn to minister to people, but the real ministry that comes our way in people 's lives is when we are are spiritually mature when we 've grown up, and that comes from totally saturating ourselves with the Word of God, so that whatever comes our way, we can respond to it from the Word of God. And part of that means that we ought to memorize the Word of God. One of the things that we will see in each of these temptations is that Jesus responds by quoting Bible verses. He doesn't respond by saying, oh, here's principle one from Bible class Thursday night. He says... And each one is a quote from Deuteronomy. And interestingly, we'll see each is also related to a messianic uh, uh context. But what he is saying is he quotes the word of God. It's the word of God that's alive and powerful, not the ten principles Pastor Dean gave you. It's the word of God. We have to know the word of God. This is what David says in Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's how we... Ch- Uh, that's how we counter the temptations of life. Paul says it a little differently in Ephesians 6, 17, where as he's talking about the armor we put on, he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The term word there isn't logos. It's not a reference to, to the written scripture. It is rhema, the spoken or utilized word. And so what, we, what we're going to see is that each time uh, Jesus is tempted, he parries and counterattacks with the word of God. And this teaches us that the way we are to handle the problems and the adversities that come our way is to claim the promises of Scripture. Is to, We have to know the promises of Scripture, and then we cite those and dependence upon them, the faith rest drill. We need to know the Word of God so that we're prepared to handle whatever comes our way. And Jesus in his humanity does that. Jesus uh, Jesus doesn't do it any other way. It's always a focus upon the centrality of the Word of God, the sufficiency of the Word of God, the sufficiency of the Spirit of God, and the sufficiency of God's plan. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be reminded that as we face the pressures of life, whatever they may be, as we go through the difficulties, as we go through the things that bring fear and anxiety into our lives, that no matter how overwhelming those circumstances might appear, no matter how irreversible or damaging they might appear, we know that you are sufficient, that, that uh, no matter what might happen, uh, we know that you are going to provide for us and take care of us. You will never leave us or forsake us. You have supplied us with everything we need for life and godliness. And the testing is there so that we come to learn that your word is sufficient, your grace is sufficient, and that your plan is sufficient. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is not sure or certain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus died on the cross for you. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. He died for everyone's sins. He paid the penalty so that we would not have to. So the issue now isn't the sin. The issue now is are you going to accept the solution? Are you going to accept the free gift of salvation? And all that's necessary to do that is to believe that Jesus died for your sins. And the promise of God's word is that at that instant, God gives you the righteousness of Christ, so that you can be declared righteous before his throne and therefore have eternal life. At that instant, you're regenerated. None of these things are reversible. You cannot lose your salvation. It is yours forever simply by trusting in Christ, believing in him, accepting that free gift of eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.